Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Perhaps we could make a start now. Um, we have a, a lecture this evening on a subject which, uh, uh, although it has a strong element of history in it, and that's why it's uh, in the historical group series, um, it originated, of course, with the uh, work on gun sites early in the aviation era. Um, of course, it's still a very much uh, an actively developing topic, and uh, it's not just got a history, um, it's got a very active present, and indeed, uh, I'm sure, um, a large future. Um, this is the subject, of course, of head-up head displays. And the title of the lecture is Through the Looking Glass. And I'm sure some of you have had a, a look at the equipment already displayed at the side here. Um, our lecturer this evening, um, Chris Bartlett, uh, is the chief engineer of the Mission Avionics Division at GEC Marconi Avionics at Rochester. And that, of course, is a very major center for head-up display work, uh, as indeed it is for other um, equipment uh, which is uh, successfully sold not only in this country but abroad. It's a center of engineering ex excellence and, and export performance. Uh, Chris Bartlett... Uh, graduated from Surrey University with an honours degree in electrical engineering uh, some years ago, I think we might say. Um, but, but, but not as long ago as I did. <laughs> <laughs> he started work with Creed in, in the electronic teleprinter area and then moved to ST&C to work on military communication systems and he joined GEC Marconi Avionics in 1972 to work on military head-up displays, and subsequently he's been much involved in the design, development, and program management of avionics. As I said a moment ago, he's chief engineer of that division. Um, he became a chartered engineer in 1973 and subsequently a fellow of the Institution of Electrical Engineers. And he's a member of the Society for Information Display and of the International Optical Society. I'm sure we couldn't find a better person to lecture on this uh, uh, significant and, as I said, very active subject. Uh, he's brought with him... Uh, uh, not only head-up, well, in fact, head-up displays. The head-up displays will be on the screen there. I'll hand over straight away to Chris Bartlett to address you. Well, good evening, lady and gentlemen, and uh, thank you for that introduction, Frank. So the lectures on the subject of head-up displays. Um, I want to describe the displays, talk about their development, and show you a few videos. Um, I'm very conscious that there's a number of people in the audience who know more about this story than I do, being just a baby in the industry myself. But um, firstly, the subject matter is clearly concerned with the product of GC Marconi Avionics, and uh, I must thank the company for permission to give the talk and say that uh, the views in it are, of course, my own. Um, the lecture was specified to be very precise and very short, um, since it's mostly about military products, it will almost certainly fail to meet its specification and will probably overrun. So, the head-up display was developed to present flight information overlaid on the pilot's view through the windshield, ideally at the same focal distance as his normal vision. It's a dominant feature of the modern military cockpit. That's the sort of symbology that uh, you saw in the video clip earlier. I won't go through what it all means, but that's what the pilot's looking at with the outside world behind it. In its simplest form, it's, it's a sight, and that indeed is where they started. 
But this sort of thing, if, you, if you're a fan of Top Gun and seen Tom Cruise flying his aircraft around, um, he has one of these in full colour, I think. But uh, you'll see, uh, you'll be well aware of how important that is. I'm sure you're all avid fans of video games as well and can uh, uh, see these sorts of things on the uh, fly or your F117 into uh, Baghdad type video games. So it's, uh, it's there in uh, common um, usage. So going back to it as a site though, hence the, uh, the term gun site. So let's go back to June 1901, a little bit before aircraft, and uh, there was a patent attributed to a gentleman by the name of Sir Howard Grubb. He was a knight of a place called Rathmines in Dublin, and he had a patent, uh, 12108, Improvements for Sighting Devices for Guns, and that embodies all the key elements of a head-up display. So you've got an image source. There we are. In this case, an illuminated graphical bulb and a graphical there. You've got a reflector. In this case, actually quite a sophisticated prism. You've got a collimating lens here to produce parallel light rays and a semi-reflective combining glass. So the image will appear to be as far distant as the object. Coincidence of the target and sight is not affected by the position of the observer's eye, so there's no parallax. A further similarity is that this device must be aligned to the gun itself, a process known as bore sighting. So Sir Howard describes a number of different versions of this site, and indeed they do look very familiar. Those of you who looked at the head-up displays on the way in will, will recognize how familiar they seem. I'm sure there's a number of experts among you, though, who will spot the problems of allowing for the vagaries of uh, munition performance and uh, drift. And so Howard uh, actually coped with the latter effects somewhere on here. It's a bit difficult to see, but up in this area, there's uh, some gearing which actually adjusted the angle of the sight coincident with that of the gun and I'm saying this is where the term gun sight comes from. So he had a simple computer on his site. Now this patent is so comprehensive that even today no major conceptual improvement has been made. So we move on a bit to uh, 1911. A gentleman by the name of Colonel Kappa, he told the Aeronautical Society, as seems to be before you got the, the royal bit on the front, it's just the Aeronautical Society. At present, I would like my aeroplanes to give me information by reconnaissance. At the same time, I would require them to be armed with some kind of light shooting weapon, as it might not prove unlikely that they might be required to fight an enemy aeroplane. So lots of negatives in that, but I think you get the idea. He thought that people would need to shoot from aeroplanes. So, the first official firing of a gun from an aircraft took place in about 1912 when the well-known Geoffrey de Havilland took off in an FE-2 fitted with a Vickers Maxim gun from, uh, for gun trials at Farnborough. Now, he reported a problem in acquiring the target and this is a constant theme of the development of these sites. What he said was, some means of range-finding should be provided to avoid wastage of ammunition on targets beyond the range of the gun, as air firing always involves the movement of the gun and a target aircraft, the problem of deflection shooting would have to be considered. Now, that's terribly important. He's got the, the basic problem of, of gun sights in, in a nutshell there. Now, it was World War I, of course, that gave rise to the first glimmerings of, of weapon aiming. I hate to say it, but in the first part of the war, pilots were actually gentlemen, but eventually they succumbed to taking pot shots at each other using carbines, uh, sporting guns, just about anything they could fit in the cockpit. Well, of course, 
it was bound to get serious as the war progressed and eventually they fitted machine guns to the aircraft. Just before World War I, some primitive work had been done by the Admiralty with optical sights and um, they, they tried to copy the, the naval gun sights of the time, not very successfully. But the first ones that went up in aircraft were the um, V backsight and blade foresight copied from the infantry, sort of things you'd have on an ordinary rifle. Now, these were quite useless in aerial combat because you need to aim off with crossing targets. And provided that the attacker is dead astern, aiming is relatively simple. But if you're manoeuvring, life gets very, very complicated. The attacking pilot must estimate the aim-off or lead angle up here so that the gun, aiming his guns in the direction such that the bullets reach the target at the right time. Now, calculating all those parameters when you have a, a moving platform here, you've got a moving target, you've got bullets, wind speed, gravity, and it's still one of the most sophisticated equations that you can do. Air-to-air -air computation is difficult. And this, but this was the first thing that they were trying to do. It took an awful lot long, longer before bombing actually progressed beyond uh, simply unclipping a bomb and dropping it over the side. So we're really talking about air-to-air. Here we have the simple frame sight, and it was the Germans that introduced it, again by looking at what the Navy were doing. This rectangular frame, as you see, has a couple of vertical lines in it to allow for deflection estimation. Now, of course, the next problem was um, how do you stop shooting the propeller off? And uh, a gentleman by the name of Saulnier invented the synchronizing gear and at that, once you could do that, you could actually set the gun, the gun itself could be bore sighted and the sight could be set remote. This sort of frame sight here was fitted to the highly successful Fokker E monoplane from about 1915 and eventually was fitted to the Bristol Scout and the Royal Naval Air Service um, fitted it on their Sopwith Pup. Right, now this is a more effective sight. This is the ring and bead sight. There's the ring, and somewhere there ought to be a bead. There's a little bead in the middle. And what you do, you align the ring and the bead and the target for a perfect shot. The ring allows the pilot to engage an aircraft crossing at any angle, and it gives you some idea of range by comparing the size of that ring with, with that of the target. They settled down, all these rings were different sizes originally, but they, they settled down to a standard size. So the bead was mounted on a pylon, usually, at the muzzle end of the gun, although it's not actually visible on this one. The idea, you align the bead within the center ring, place the target on the edge here, flying inwards, and this gives you a reasonable correction for lead angle. So these sort of sites remained in use till about the 1930s. Well, the next problem they found with air-to-air -air gunnery was that bullets, when fired to the side, of course, lose the forward speed of the aircraft. Not that that forward speed was particularly great at the time, but they solved the problem by locating the bead on a simple vane up here. So this vane was deflected by the, the wind and produced a lag in the system. There was a Lieutenant um, Norman of the Royal Flying Corps introduced this idea um, in about 1916. And interestingly enough, this went right through into World War II and the US Air Force was still using it in their bombers. In, uh, towards the end of, of World War II, just as a simple correction for, for the speed of the aircraft. So, with the ring and bead, 
both elements needed to be aligned on the target. This was difficult with a fixed gun, so again they went back to the naval gun sights, which used an optical system with collimated lenses. The first optical sight was made in 1915. Here's an optical sight. That was made by the eldest company of Spark Hill in Birmingham. It was very accurate. The high magnification that the naval gunners used was actually soon removed and they simply put a circular graticle in one end and a means of checking, measuring deflection on that graticle was, was added to it. A more serious problem though was the, uh, the front end where they had to have a little flap operated by a cable because of the uh, oil flowing back from the engine. And uh, that's actually quite interesting because some of these early radial engines were actually uh, lubricated with something rather akin to castor oil. And uh, what its effect on the pilot's innards must have been, I, I dread to think. Let's think about that one. The other problem was that the pilot was, was sitting here with virtually not quite one eye glued to that, but that was the way he was using it. And uh, in air-to-ground combat, this was actually very difficult because he couldn't actually see where he was going other than through the sight. And there are quite a few recorded instances of, of the pilot simply flying straight into the ground, which were attributed to them being um, so keen on looking through the gun sight. So this site went into service in about 1917 and uh, it had a reputation of, of magical powers. So the French introduced a version shortly afterwards and so did the Germans, again, a company called the Oiji Company. And these, these Aldis sites were very much sought after to the extent that initially when the Germans did not have them, they would actually uh, go out and take any crashed aircraft and deliberately find the crashed aircraft and take this site off of it to use themselves. So both the ring and bead site, I don't think this aircraft has both, but I, I have some other pictures where you actually see both ring and bead and the oldest site um, served together. Uh, really because of this problem of needing peripheral vision, uh, being able to look round it, and um, very much so because of the, uh, the problem of the oil fouling the end. Uh, once that happened, I mean, clearly you can't easily reach forward and clean it. So that survived, in fact, for about 20 years. Very effective. Right, this is the next one. Now here you're seeing Grubb's original patent actually uh, at work. Now, Sir Howard Grubb actually worked for the Vickers Company and uh, in 1915 they, they even made a prototype and took out a patent which said that this site might be useful against aircraft. But what did they do? Sir Howard Grubb actually worked on submarine periscopes. They neither of them realized the potential for, for an aircraft site. So uh, this, this, was the, uh, this was a Vickers Mallet site of um, about 1915. This provides the, as you can see, the grub patterned here again, the light source, the graticule, combined glass, collimating lenses. Very, very familiar. Some rather nice wiring down the bottom end. This gave the gunner an aiming mark or, or reticle presented at infinity. The light source behind the reticle, uh, pattern passes through the focal plane of the collimating lens and off to the uh, pilot's eye. Again, funnily enough, it was the Germans, the Oiji company, in 1918 who actually used this first of all. And they fitted it to the Fokker DR1. Then, um, even stranger, they invited the U.S. military attaché to, to come and have a look at this thing. And uh, he said, this is fantastic. And sent it back to the United States, to the Wright Labs. And they said, what do we want one of these things for? 
and showed absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. So the, the story moves on from that point to Barr and Stroud, a well-known company still in existence. They took up the development, but it wasn't until 1926 that their reflector site, the GD1, was actually tested at Martlesham Heath, at the what was then the Aircraft and Armament Experimental Establishment. Now, at this time too, the Germans were still developing sites, but uh, I dug this rather amusing fact out that uh, they weren't actually allowed to be making armaments, and this was 1931. So they called this, their version of this, an electrical levelling instrument. And that, of course, fooled everyone, didn't it? Well, at this time, the German design was once again sent over to the United States, and this time it was actually copied by Wright Labs, and it became the N-Site, and this was the US standard for about the next 20 years. So war was once again looming. Barnstroud continued their work, and um, interestingly, in about 1934, they produced a version of, of this, the GD5, which um, projected off the windshield of a hawk or demon. Now again, uh, this isn't the uh, windshield one, I hasten to add, this is the earlier um, GD1 site. And, um, the, but the later one, projecting off the windshield, is a story we'll come back to because um, double imaging was a problem. This was tried again in World War II with the uh, Typhoon projecting off the windshield and even later with the TSR-2, uh, with the same problem in each case. But the, the well-known GM-2 design was patented in 1937, and uh, an order of about uh, 1600 began to be fitted to Gloucester Gladiators in about 1938. Here's the uh, GM-2 fitted to the Spitfire, and this saw of course, widespread use throughout the war. I think something like 84,000 of these were produced, which is seems incredible, but uh, that, I believe that to be a true figure. Again, a, a rather interesting fact. At the time of the Munich crisis, Barr and Stroud were a bit overstretched trying to make these things, and um, they licensed the manufacture of, of this particular one to a company called C.P. Goetz in Vienna, which was rather an interesting situation, um, because despite the German-Austrian pact of 1939, these uh, folk at C.P. Goetz were very dedicated and continued to deliver gun sites to uh, the British. And um, they delivered the last one of their order of 700 about three or four days before war was declared. <laughs> kind of interesting, that. One, one slight interesting thing about the Spitfire, um, over-the-nose vision was fairly restricted, and uh, the A&E actually explored putting a mirror up the top here and another one just in front to make a sort of periscope uh, to give you those extra few degrees of over-the-nose vision. Uh, I've no record of that ever having been used in, in combat. So this reflector site was developed in France, in Italy. The Germans have got one. Carl Zeiss, of course, well-known company, were equipping the Luftwaffe with one. The US Army Air Corps had the N series, and uh, those of you who've worked much with the Americans will not be surprised to find the Na US Navy did something completely different and actually fitted the British uh, GM-2 site. And even the Soviet Union uh, developed their own version. That's probably one of the latest uh, versions of the uh, reflector gun sight. What was really wanted, though, was something a bit more sophisticated. And it was the gyro gun sight that really solved the problem of deflection. This concept was introduced in 1917 by, uh, but it wasn't until sort of 1936 that Dr. Cunningham propounded the theory of how it should work. And uh, it's interesting as to why, why was it needed? Well, 
again, Sir Henry Tizard stated that although the new Spitfire and Hurricane fighters performed well, their effectiveness would be vastly improved if some way could be found to predict the amount of lead required to hit the target accurately. And here's the crunch. Many of the gun camera films prove that if the combat had been in earnest, the enemy would have escaped entirely unscathed. So the director of Farnborough was asked to investigate the possibility of a predictor site. When the gyro is spinning, you get the movement is resisted, so as the site was turned to follow a target, the gyro causes a, a graticle to lag behind. So you get this uh, lead angle. The lag depends on the rate of turn, and then you can add in range, altitude, height, um, can be preset computed in as well. By summer of 1940, this Mark I gyro gun sight was ready for production, so they said, and a contract was given to Ferranti and to Elliott Brothers of London, and this is the earliest sight that was made by Elliott Brothers. Um, I have actually been offered one of these, brand new, boxed. I was told it would be terribly expensive to buy, probably £200. So I think I should probably try and acquire that for the company. So they set, they set off with a production contract. I'm sure we've heard this story before. Um, having placed a production contract, somebody thought it would be a good idea to find out if it worked. So they um, gave them to some test pilots to try. And um, test pilots thought it was wonderful. But then test pilots are rather special people. And squadron pilots had a real problem. They put it into mass production in 1941, but Sir Sholto Douglas uh, damned it. Amongst other reasons, um, he said it was uh, the problem of installation. And about this time, a story arose of pilots who had what was known as sight face. <laughs> Very simply, it meant that they crashed and hit their face on this and uh, was, was deemed to be extraordinarily unsafe. So the improved Mark II gun sight was, was brought into place in uh, 1943. It gave the Allies a significant advantage. In fact, it was said to be the single most important piece of equipment introduced into service during the war. The new design owes very much to Ferranti and uh, their work on the gyro and electrical components and they set up a new factory at uh, Crew Toll near Edinburgh. Uh, they actually tried to use the cinema, and sorry, the ice rink in Edinburgh to manufacture these, but it wasn't available. So uh, Sir Stafford Cripps said, go build. So they started, they found a greenfield site at Crew Toll, and uh, that site was purchased in December 1942. Eighteen weeks later, it opened, fully equipped, ready to make gun sights. And the first of them were delivered to RAE in December 43. So that's pretty good going. Shows what you can do under wartime conditions. About 950 people were employed making them, and they produced about just under 10,000 of these during the war. Barn Stroud, Ray Roll, and... Uh, uh, and a rather interesting firm called Hall Telephones made these as well. There's no record of any further contracts going to Elliott's, though. I draw no conclusions from that. A new generation of jet fighters came in after the war, the Meteor and the Vampire, and various new gyro gun sites like this one appeared. And in fact, there was an alternative gun sighting system um, called radar ranging that was introduced by GEC at that point and um, ECHO, E.K. E Cole. Um, this is the Mark VII gyro gun sight fitted to the Gloucester Javelin. And the two ideas of, uh, of a CRT and a gyro gun sight were actually combined together. And the cathode ray tube had a search radar picture which was presented with the normal gyro gun sight one. And this is the, uh, the Hunter FGA Mark IX, who the, um, uh, the gentleman at the reception told me he flew, and he knew all about these. And uh, this is the Mark VIII gyro gun sight with air-to-ground 
computation. So, move on to 1957, and uh, Ferranti then developed a pilot attack site, which is a, a gyro site, which has a radar target indicator. This could, this was really getting sophisticated. This could cope with Mark II combat up to 70,000 feet. If the radar lock was lost, it reverted to a simple gun sight. Um, a lightweight version of this, similar to this, was fitted to the fallen Nat. And the ultimate one was probably the Ferranti ISIS site, Integrated Strike and Interception System. That came in about 1960. You had roll and pitch information, and uh, when combined with an air data computer, you could do altitude and airspeed. So you could do full air-to-air, air-to-ground computation. An advanced ISIS site was uh, fitted to the uh, Argentinian A4 Skyhawks, um, used in the Falklands War. Uh, it was quite an interesting situation that we may well have seen uh, uh, two British pieces of kit fighting against each other at that time. That didn't quite happen. So that was seen, you've seen how effective those um, gun sites were. So although these sites look very similar to a head-up display, they're not as versatile. What was really needed was a cathode ray tube-based display and a computer to calculate all the release parameters. Now, those of you who are television fans, there's an advertisement which says, I think it's for a hairspray, but it, and it says at this point we come to the science bit. Or so we do. Let me tell you a little bit about head-up displays, first of all, about field of view. You need to distinguish between the total field of view and the instantaneous field of view. This is the total field of view. The two are not the same, as you can see from there. The total field of view is the total angular coverage of the cathode ray tube imagery, which can be seen by moving the pilot's eye position anywhere within that. Okay? The instantaneous field of view means just that. It's what you can actually see at any time with one eye. Two eyes, hence the two circles. The total field of view is constrained by the size of the cathode ray tube and by how short the focal length of this collimating lens actually is. The instantaneous field of view is limited by the size of this exit lens. Six or seven inches is about the limit. If they're any bigger, they tend to crack. And you also need a long focal length for accuracy, so you've got a contradiction there. Large lenses here are also very, very heavy. So this field of view has always been a problem. A conventional HUD field of view, we'll pass rapidly on from this one, it's like looking through a knothole in a fence. The closer you get, the more you see. In this case, instantaneous field of view and total field of view could be the same, but a modern military pilot is constrained by ejection clearances, cockpit installation. He simply can't fly with his nose right on the um, head-up display. One of the things you can do to improve the vertical field of view is to add another combiner glass. But you can't do very much in the horizontal direction. So here, with an extra combiner glass, we've got a double bubble. Um, somebody once said this is a, a vertical view of two sumo wrestlers. have to think about that one as well. The optics on the head-up display have to withstand a lot of... Um, problems, intense sunlight, they must minimize reflections, provide very high accuracy. High brightness is also necessary. This is uh, actually a, a head-up display cathode ray tube out of the Buccaneer head-up display over there. It's one of the first airborne cathode ray tubes. Um, this type of uh, vacuum pip-off here is um, incredibly vulnerable, and all the modern ones have it down the end here, like... Uh, uh, this went out of, out of the design very rapidly because it was just so vulnerable. You could not get a head-up display until you had a cathode ray tube like this. And uh, if, you, if you're keen on data, this, a modern cathode ray tube will push out 10,000-foot um, Lamberts. We tend to use the American 34,000 candelas per square meter. Your domestic TV set does about um, 60 to 100 foot Lamberts, 
So we're talking orders of magnitude more. The latest designs do um, another 6,000 foot Lamberts on top of that, 16,000 from a tube, again about this sort of size, two, two, two and a quarter inches diameter. So it was this that held back the development of the head-up display. It's, it's actually worth noting that low brightness operation is also very important and the stability of these tubes in the early days was not good. If you're trying to fly low level it's really not much fun for the pilot to have his display gently fade out on him at a few hundred feet. So the stability is, is very important. So we package nowadays the drive electronics round the stem of the tube. You'll have a deflection system, a video system, power supplies, and the uh, inevitable processor. The HUD itself will be driven by a waveform generator um, with, with memories, power regulators, and, and all those sorts of things. Um, nowadays, you'll have a memory of about 3 meg or so in these, and indeed memory in the uh, pilot's display unit itself to handle all the housekeeping. Data comes in from inertial navigation units, air data computers, all these sorts of things. I tend to concentrate on the, uh, on the black box, not the, uh, the PDU. That's the face of the system to me, the most interesting part. Anyway, that's the science bit. In about 1955, the US Navy had dabbled with HUDs, and it was a British invention, finally. The air staff prepared a specification for a new strike aircraft, which demanded low-level, high-speed weapon aiming and a head-up display. This was the, uh, the Buccaneer, originally the uh, Blackburn NA-39. It first flew in 1958, entered the Royal Navy service in 1961, and Ranks Intel, advised by the RE, designed the head-up display, which is the unit you see on the table over there, the larger of the two. This was a true derivative of the Grubb patent. With the illuminated reticle replaced by a cathode ray tube, this tube, I think, was warranted for about 50 hours. 20 degree total field of view, 4 inch exit lens, and this single fold down combiner. The aft end of the unit has this big rubber cushion, very familiar from the earlier gun sights. And the Mark I display, of which that is a Mark I over there, had a valve EHT unit, which I do recall took simply ages to warm up. Um, the story of how I got that one, uh, my company actually had a pristine condition uh, Mark III, which seems to have disappeared. And I knew a gentleman in Kettering who uh, was interested in this, and he said, leave it with me, I know where there is one. And about a month later, the phone rang, and this uh, voice said, here, Gov, do you want the head-up display? I said, uh, yes, I've got one in my garage, as one would. And uh, he uh, said, I've got one out of the Fairy Delta II, I've got a Buccaneer, and he listed a whole range of these things. So I um, double-checked that this was genuine before we uh, wrote out a company check for the princely sum of £80, and um, indeed purchased the Mark I Buccaneer unit. And uh, our financial director thought this was highly amusing and suggested we bought a few more because they were cheaper than the ones we were making at the moment. <laughs> so the symbology was generated within this dustbin unit on cards that were rather like the shape of an artist's palette with a different card for each symbol. Um, all analog, of course. So the subsequent history of head-up displays is very much that of GC Marconi Avionics. I mean, other companies, of course, have contributed. Smith's Industries has a strong reputation in the UK, particularly for Harrier, Jaguar, Tornado, and so on. Um, Ferranti made a, a range of head-up displays, um, including the Tornado Midlife Upgrade, in the, now that they're incorporated into uh, um, GC. You have Thomson CSF, Sextant in Europe, and Kaiser Hughes in the United States, for example. 
I'm talking about um, GEC Marconi's role because I know it better and because we've made more head-up displays than everyone else in the world put together. A little bit about the company. Uh, it owes its origins to both William Elliott and uh, to Marconi. Uh, William Elliott set up as an instrument maker in 1800 and he concentrated on the head-down market with instruments like this for the Vickers gun bus with his uh, altimeter and uh, airspeed indicator, RPM indicator. Uh, even before that, though, he made uh, pocket altimeters for balloonists. So at about the same time, the Marconi company, this is a, an early Wright flyer here, and uh, they're installing radio equipment in that um, aircraft. In about 1962, two key designers from Ranksintel moved to set up a little company called Specto and worked on a HUD for the P-1153, later to become the Harrier. It blossomed in 1964 when Specto was bought out by Smiths, Ranksintel was bought out by Elliott Flight Automation. Now, Elliott Automation had been formed in about 1947 on the established site at Rochester, and in 1966, the display's activity from the old Ranks Intel site at um, Lower Sydenham moved into Rochester, where our wonderful three towers had just been finished. The name of Rank, now Brymar, continues to have a long association with the HUD story through the development of the cathode ray tube, and it's again interesting that Brymar and Sintel are still associated companies. So the two roots of GC Marconi Avionics came together in about 1967 when Elliott and English Electric merged and the following year the company was acquired by GEC. And we went through a horrendous number of name changes that I can't even remember. We lost the Marconi name and we got it back again. I do recall and I'm sure people in the audience can confirm that our contracts of employment still seem to be with Elliott Brothers till quite late though. So, back to the Buccaneer HUD, that continued in production up to a Mark III version with a total of 375 systems. It was given this fit-and-forget title by the Navy, it was so reliable. It was still in service 25 years later. There was a solid, solitary derivative of it fitted to the Sea Vixen, and there's a picture on the side there of the Sea Vixen HUD. The showpiece of British industry that led to our next milestone. This head-up display was also designed by Ranksintel and was fitted to the aircraft which first flew in September 1964. This large exit lens here was because this one projected off the windshield. The glass was extremely thick to give bird strike protection but of course there were multiple reflections off inner and outer surfaces. It was a real problem to uh, get aligned and uh, the whole thing was, was really quite an expensive piece of kit. So um, only one of these 20 that we made still exists and I had a very interesting discussion with the uh, curator of the uh, Cosford Aviation Museum who said I have a uh, almost complete airframe in my museum and I would love to have a head up, have a head up display and he carried on talking, and I said, yes, I've got one on my desk. I really had it. It was on my desk at that point. And his jaw dropped open. He said, give it to me. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't bring that one tonight. It's rather a heavy one to uh, lug around. But, of course, there's an airframe, as I said, at Cosford, another one at um, the Imperial War Museum. And uh, those of you at, uh, at Farnborough, if you look across to the clump of trees in the middle of the Farnborough complex, within that clump of trees are three sets of TSR2 wings. Ken, you might like to go and have a look when you go back there. So with the cancellation of uh, TSR2, the HUD technology was adapted to the transport Belfast. We had a brief burst of sales to the Swedish Air Force with a, a single version so we then, we then explored the uh, Swedish sails. That's the, the Lanson. I thought you might like to see that. It's a fairly rare animal, that one. And we sold a whole one 
for that. But we did a little better with the Vigan and uh, sold about 125 for the Vigan. Around 1968, the company experimented with uh, civil head-up displays in uh, working with McDonnell Douglas on the DC-930, with Short Brothers and with A&EE on the Belfast and the blind flying, blind landing experimental unit uh, using a Comet and a Varsity. The Belfast was carrying out fully automatic landings at this time using the HUD linked to the automatic landing control systems and a new generation HUD, the Type 80, was introduced for the civil market in July 1968, uh, but sadly only three of these were actually delivered. Uh, there are various versions of this one around. Um, uh, one was fitted to the uh, Breguet, I think the Atlantic. Interestingly, we also, uh, also unearthed this rather interesting beast, which was uh, a HUD for Concorde. Yes, thought you'd like that one. Um, it was never flown. It was an overhead installation, so it really should be the other way up. And it had a cantilevered combiner, and uh, it had two one-and-a-half-inch CRTs in the body here, and, of course, in improved the uh, horizontal field of view. At the same time, there was an installation proposed for the VC-10 with an overhead projector and a glare shield mounted combiner. The, the relative movement of these two must have created a few problems. I've no record of that ever having been flown. But these designs set the background for the civil market and uh, certainly there's, uh, there's more than one person in the audience, and I won't embarrass him by naming him, who wrote an article in 1968 all about why we should be in the civil head-up display market and it's taken 30 years for us to do it. You can't rush these things. So the first approach to the US market stemmed from the time when the UK was busily buying the F4s, the C-130s, buying the F-111 as a replacement for TSR-2. And this was the ILAS HUD. And this was going to be the main one for the US Navy under a contract from Sperry. This was the first truly Elliott-designed HUD had a digital processor. The digital processor was fun. Its memory was uh, all of 2K. Remember I said we're up to 3 meg now. And uh, the core plane was originally knitted by the lace makers of Portugal. And uh, then they, there was a bit of a workers' revolution and they took it out to, to Malta and, of course, finally to Hong Kong. Uh, I used to come in on a, on a Sunday having worked out whether you threaded the cores from left to right and up and down, and you'd spread them all out down a great long bench, and just all to one word would take the whole of Sunday to, uh, to modify it. Ah, those were the days. Our software department consisted of one cupboard and one man. The ILAS program was a demonstrator when the Navy contract was actually awarded to uh, Fort in October 67 for the A7 Corsair. That's the A7 head-up display with a 5-inch lens now, 20-degree field of view, and this two-position combiner here, to and fro. Had a clever split prism inside it to allow standby sight to be injected, and uh, so it had a red standby sight, green symbology. The US Navy pilots insisted on switching both of these onto maximum and flying it that way, whatever we said or did to them. This was a breakthrough into the US market, golden era for HUDs. 2,534 of these were built, and here you see four of them on test at the same time. The A7 was an interesting aircraft. It was... Um, uh, gave rise in Vietnam days to a, to a magazine that the U.S. Marines actually produced, which was called Slough, which in, in polite society was short little ugly fellow, although I think it actually had a cruder acronym for them. But uh, strange uh, that uh, this magazine was done just like the Eagle comic with the Marines um, calling up the Slough when they were in trouble. We did a variant of this design for um, the C-130 gunship, which was fitted in the C-130. Um, you may recall the C-130 had uh, was, a, was the gunship used in Vietnam with a cannon firing out of the door at the back and flew around in left-hand circles. And uh, this uh, 
Somebody told me the story that this, uh, the, the tray for the uh, C-130 display was, was set in concrete, but uh, we can't confirm that at all. Seems unlikely. This one up here is um, the system that was developed for the HM&N variants of the A4, and this little pilot's display unit is, um, is again on the table by the door. About 465 systems of that were delivered. Uh, this horrible video signals unit here had a fan that would howl to blazes. It's the noisiest thing I have ever heard. Just prior to this, the seeds were being sown for a different program. This was the biggest program the company had ever had. In 1972, a HUD was proposed for the YF-16, one of the contenders in a fly-off for the US lightweight fighter. The basis was a demonstrator called 664, being developed for MOD. I recall writing part of the proposal for this. I had a colleague who just joined the company. He'd just bought a new house. He had no furniture. We sat on three beer crates in his back garden, and we wrote a proposal for, so for something that we were told would be a complete waste of time. 2,236 units later, maybe we weren't. The F-16AB, which this became, was an international program involving Rochester, Atlanta in Georgia, Delft in the Netherlands, and Kongsberg in Norway. And they all made different bits, and they all fitted together, and they were all interchangeable. Amazing. It's a very small field of view in this display because the F-16 has the... Um, they were trying a, a, a G-resistant seat, which laid, the pilot laid back quite significantly. So he only had uh, about 9 degree vertical field of view and about 13 degrees in azimuth. You notice too the very rigid frame on them. That was to resist bird strike. It's a bit exaggerating, 450 knots, pushing it a bit for a bird. But it can do an awful lot of damage. In fact, goes, the F-16 is particularly important because it has a, a polycarbonate canopy that will deform onto the, and actually hit the head-up display. So much of the history of this was making of displays now was to make the field of view larger. The, the world's first raster system was developed by GC Marconi Avionics in about uh, in, in the early 70s for the A7 Corsair. Um, this was a FLIR pod that was used, giving this sort of picture. This had a zoom capability of about 11 to 1 and was used to identify target ships from altitude. It had a very um, high brightness symbology mode and a raster display at night. Uh, we used a, a complex dual Vidicon system with a camera and it had more adjustment uh, potentiometers than I've ever seen in my life. We made about 65 of these. Just a short little story about that. Uh, on one of the trials apparently in um, um, near Fort Worth, these were uh, sent off into the, the they sent a, a set of trucks off into the desert and um, to see if the A7s could identify them. Well, unfortunately, the local sheriff was also looking for cattle rustlers, and he thought he'd found his cattle rustlers. So they jumped out of hiding, so the story goes, to uh, um, attack these uh, people who were taking their cattle, at which point the A7s appeared to beat the daylights out of the uh, trucks. So it makes a good story. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. In 1976, some British trials took place with a hunter at uh, then RAE. And the idea was to find out what you needed to fly with a head-up display at night. And uh, a raster display was produced for this. And out of the trials, they found that a 20-degree azimuth by 15 degrees in elevation was the minimum. You really need a large field of view if you're flying low level at night to look into to turns. We saw some novel attempts to uh, improve the field of view. In the States, in the, uh, uh, the company called Farrand had actually developed a HUD with a curved combiner which gave a 35 by 25 field of view. And um, that was quite interesting. It was actually flown in an A6 at Pax River. We were exploring other approaches. The first of these was the, was the Perry HUD, which is this one, and uh, there's a 
wonderful picture here. This uh, looks like a rather pot-bellied pilot <laughs> actually flying the thing, which allowed him to look round the cathode ray tube. This, this was flown in an F-14. We went on and tried various Venetian blind systems. This is a 1979 multi-combiner in an A7, again at Pax River. Um, we even had one uh, mysterious liquid-filled one. I always thought it was full of gin, because it looked a bit like that. And uh, in passing, we, uh, we did a, a head-up display for the space shuttle. But the real increase in field of view came with holographics. I'm conscious of the time, so we'll jump over some of these. Why cows? Well, holographics, um, they use gelatin, which comes from boiled-up cow bones. If you like to think of our most advanced aircraft flying like the Eurofighter behind uh, two pieces of glass with uh, a material made from boiled-up cow bones in between them, that's exactly what they're doing. We'll jump over these quickly. Holographics allow you to get almost something for nothing. They are very efficient, very narrow-band reflectors, and they can also make a flat surface do something that it's other than be a flat surface here you can uh, make a flat surface appear like a like a mirror get a, a larger image from it so put those two together you can uh, you can get a, a larger field of view put in effect what you do is put the collimating lens of the head-up display uh, up into the combiner glass this was one of the uh, a, a late version, but of a very early design, because the design came out of Hughes in about 1967, and uh, where the first work was done, uh, they produced their first design in 1972. And uh, funnily enough, the first Hughes design actually had a liquid crystal display instead of a cathode ray tube, which was quite sporting for 1972. And uh, that design was patented in um, 1975 and through various licensing deals ended up in the uh, Gripen through uh, an Ericsson uh, collaboration. The transmission is excellent, but I think um, some of you may notice it's not a good picture, but look what happens to the uh, runway lines. They bend nicely <coughs> through there. We uh, began, within GEC, began developing holographic elements in the 70s, building on the work of uh, Dr. Firth at the uh, Marconi Research Labs. This was an early demonstrator, the so-called lensless HUD, because there are no other lenses. This is a TV screen here, and three holographic elements here. And we even had another one um, of similar concept called the ashtray HUD. So we developed a, a system which was going to work with the Lantern aircraft, which this, this is the uh, F-16 with a Lantern pod for targeting and uh, night sensing. This was the head-up display in two versions. It's interesting, this was the earlier version with these tie bars and uh, you just get a feel about a piece of equipment. You know, if it looks right, it is right. This is the same thing, but doesn't it look so much better? So much cleaner and smoother, with a little uh, difference in design. I have to show that one for no other reason that it's probably one of the best publicity pictures we could ever have, taken with a handheld camera. And indeed, it shows um, the what flying an F-16 is like. There is... The canopy is down, but the visibility you can see is, is superb. So a variant of that head-up display was actually built for the A-10 Thunderbolt. Um, this is the, probably the largest holographic elements ever produced for a head-up display. This beast weighs about 61 pounds. The holographic HUD was not that easy to make, so we had an interim one which uh, was produced to a very basic spec, sort of, uh, just a few lines, really. And this was simply known as the F-16CD. It's a real benchmark, though. It's got all the facilities of the lantern one you saw earlier, but with a conventional-style optics. 
Well, so far about 2,300 of these have been sold and it's been fitted to um, the A7DK, to the MiG-21 and so on and so on. Um, so that puts about another 1,500 on top of that. In passing, there was a, an interesting... Ah, it's the F-16 cockpit. If you look back, you can see how the F-16 has developed as well from that, those very early pictures. Much more sophisticated cockpit. This is a version for the MiG-21. Ah, this is the, uh, this is the F-4. We're putting a HUD in an F-4 was rather interesting because they had a radar display here. So what we did, we actually bent the radar display round through the corner so you could look at it here and put a head-up display in front of it. Uh, that didn't come to anything, unfortunately. We also fought and won the HUD for the short-lived F-20. Um, it was an interesting story because uh, uh, I went out and signed the technical contract and was given a, uh, one of these cross pens for doing that. And I thought, this is interesting, the, uh, the, the engraving that said F-20 Tiger Shark isn't filled in. There's no gold in there or anything. Well, we've been back at uh, work for a few weeks and they cancelled the whole program, so perhaps they knew something. In about the uh, 1985, we came up with a very shallow design which was um, going to go in the, uh, the A6, but that didn't really materialise until... This was the C-17, and this was a particularly interesting head-up display because it's a high-integrity one. This one has backward path processing in it, so uh, it can be a primary flight instrument. The signals come in right up to the cathode ray tube. We monitor just before the face plate what's actually there, feed it back, compare it to what comes in. There are two of these in the cockpit. Um, this combiner glass was uh, fold down for cross-cockpit viewing. And uh, the sales video we produced was very interesting because the then chief engineer uh, was demonstrating this and we had strict instructions, do not stop. We will edit out any mistakes you make in recording this. Well, he managed to uh, shut his fingers in this thing <laughs> and uh, it was impossible to continue. We were just laughing so much. So on to um, civil huds now back to the civil HUDs. I said it would take about 30 years. This was actually the mono HUD developed in 1978, flying in a BAC 111. And uh, that gentleman is still, uh, still works at uh, Rochester, not with that haircut though. And um, that's still flying, or was flying, at uh, Bedford. Uh, it was developed by the US side of the company for the UH-40 helicopter. But the civil transport market, the running was really made by Flight Dynamics in Oregon, who in 1977, formed in 77, and they sold about 500 civil HUDs. My company initially developed a, a version based on F-16 C-17 that, uh, for what was called the Enhanced Vision System, fitted to the Gulfstream 2, teamed with Honeywell we've supplied head-up displays for the Gulfstream 4 and 5. But we've just won a major order from American Airlines for a head-up display to be fitted to the 737-800. That's got an overhead projection unit up here. This is sort of symbology that uh, you're seeing. The combiner glass folds up out of the pilot's field of view. Extremely thin, about um, less than a centimetre thick, that glass, with uh, uh, frequency selective coating made up of hundreds of layers of variable refractive index. Very sophisticated. Um, we couldn't sell it as that. We had to call it a hologram, so it was actually marketed as a synthetic hologram, which it isn't, but uh, never mind. Um, this is a significant breakthrough into a very important market area, uh, with potential on this program alone for another about 400 aircraft. So to complete the picture, the Eurofighter is probably the most advanced military head-up display in the world. That has a, a single element combiner made at Rochester in our, designed and built at Rochester in our holographic facility. And 
That uses a new technique called computer-generated holographics that allows you to correct the distortion by uh, the way that the uh, mirror power is changed over that surface. It's, it's a flat structure, unlike the curved one you saw in the Gripen, so there is no outside world distortion. A cursive-only version of that is just starting to be fitted for the, uh, the F-22 program. So there's um, about 400 of those for the F-22 and about 600 for the Eurofighter. That gives us a total of about um, 12,500 head-up displays on order or delivered, which, as I say, is more than everyone else in the world put together. So what about the future? Well, the head-up display has probably reached its limit of development. Here you see a scheme for a future cockpit, a big picture head down, a helmet-mounted sight in this case, and no head-up display. I'm not sure. Head-up display is extremely accurate. If you want to drop iron bombs or rockets or have a, an accurate on-bore sight system, the head-up display is the only way you can do it. We are still waiting to see whether the next generation Joint Strike Fighter will have a head-up display or not. I suspect it may. In the military field, these helmet-mounted systems are beginning to appear. But as I say, I think the HUD still has a future. It's a long way we've come in this talk from the early pioneers of flight and those early displays, the primitive gun sights. But you can be assured that certainly in my company and elsewhere that the inventiveness of Sir Howard Grubb is very much alive and I hope I've been able to show you that in this talk. Thank you very much.